You're listening to Fund Shack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm speaking with Jonathan Blake, Head of International Fund Strategy at Herbert Smith Freehills. Jonathan has been called the father of European fund formation, and with good reason. He pretty much invented the private equity limited partnership model and personally persuaded the tax man on the treatment of carried interest. He has since had a stellar career in private equity and venture capital fund formation, advising on hundreds of processes over decades. Jonathan, welcome to Fund Shack. Thank we were you. talking a few months ago um, about how the European venture capital and private equity industry got going because 2023 marks 40 years since the establishment. Yeah, that's of the amazing. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's a big business now. It's a global business, private equity, but it hasn't, it's been around for less, clearly, less than a, uh, a working yes. career. And you were in the room, really, when it, when it really got going, so to speak. Yes, just about. I don't <laughs> think I was in the very room where the BBCA was sort of con- conceived, but uh, I wasn't much later than that. And likewise, uh, the EVCA, now called Invest Europe. Uh, I think they were both uh, formed in the same year or within a year of each other. And so what were you doing at that time? Where were you working and how, how did you get roped into it all? Uh, I'd just joined a new startup firm called SJ Berwin. Um, I was a, a, a three-year qualified associate at that point or four-year. My then boss, Stanley Berwin, had sort of invited me uh, in and he had a number of friends who were uh, in the uh, vanguard of the private equity, uh, then called the whole industry was called venture capital, and it just happened by coincidence that uh, you know at the time I was involved in sort of mega mergers, takeovers, uh, um, investment bankers, and all sorts of things. Uh, he invited me to dinner one day, and um, I thought, "Wow, uh, my boss has invited me to dinner." I was uh, in my late twenties. Uh, with my wife, uh, but about uh, an hour before I was due to leave the office to go there, uh, his secretary popped in and said, you do know you're going to have to talk about the business startup scheme, um, later to be renamed the business expansion scheme, uh, to a management team uh, and their financial advisors at this dinner. And I'd never heard of the business startup scheme, so I mugged up on it and uh, ended up uh, working for this uh, uh, management team who were being uh, made redundant from uh, EverReady in the lithium battery division of all uh, areas. So uh, I assume that uh, uh, British EverReady had decided that uh, it wasn't going to continue with uh, uh, lithium batteries at that time. Mm, 40 years too early. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, so I ended up, uh, you know, they agreed to put the redundancy money available to help the team do a startup. Uh, And so this was a startup um, uh, called Venture Technology. I ended up acting for them and I much preferred that to the big investment banking stuff mergers, takeovers that I was doing at the time because it was sort of, for me, in my late 20s, real people who I could help. And so I decided to switch to do only that sort of work. What, what were the mechanisms in place for you to help them do a, what were they trying to do, a, a, a management buyout? Yes. So, I mean, there were standard agreements, uh, corporate acquisition and uh, uh, financing agreements. Uh, but, um, you know, because it was a relatively small matter, I could do them all myself, not that I necessarily knew how to do them, but uh, 
they didn't know either. <laughs> so we were yeah. sort of uh, uh, feeling our way together. Um, and so what year and was it this? was great fun. Uh, this was in 1982, which was actually the year I joined uh, S.J. Berwin. In fact, I think the year of its formation. The, in the US, the junk bond scheme was was getting going and there were some massive takeovers going on there and you would have been aware of that with your big well, I, big I, M&A I, I wasn't particularly aware of, okay. uh, of what was happening in the US. But uh, yeah, I mean, there were big uh, matters, not necessarily in venture capital as it was all then called, uh, happening at the time. And uh, uh, what I liked about this was that it was smaller and uh, mm. uh, and I could get to know all the people involved and feel I was helping. So you were you were working on MBOs, and how did the limited partnership structure then come about? Well, that was another friend of uh, Stanley Berwin. I just attended. In fact, he left me alone in a meeting um, with a guy called uh, uh, Gordon Dean, who uh, was setting up a, a venture capital fund, and uh, he had a list of requirements that he wanted it to uh, meet. Uh, which I didn't know at the time because I didn't know anything about venture capital funds, uh, were unusual. Uh, the first one of which was it had to be Onshore UK. And at that time, to avoid the double charge to capital gains tax, so, you know, the natural structure would be a company. If uh, uh, investors invest in a company and the company then buys another company, uh, the the target business you know the only way of getting the money out is through two layers and you end up with two layers of tax or at least an additional layer of tax it was felt right that one shouldn't be subject to that uh, it shouldn't be any worse than investing in the companies directly uh he said he wanted uh that he wanted a uh, a, a tax efficient carried interest efficient management charges, a whole uh, easy to operate, a whole list of uh, uh, requirements. I hadn't, didn't have a clue. Um, Presumably no, nobody did because no, no one had come up with that for U- uh, the UK before. Uh, uh, that's right, yes. As far as I know, they hadn't been used. Mm. As far as I knew at the time, uh, uh, they might not have been used anywhere. Anyway, I was uh, uh, sitting and talking to uh, this guy and uh, uh, Stanley Bowen popped his head round the door and uh, I said, well, look, here's your friend and he uh, wants to do a, a, a venture capital fund. Uh, and Stanley uh, uh, gave him all the requirements. And Stanley said, why don't you use a limited partnership? And he left the room. Uh, and I'd never heard of a limited partnership. I mean, they were sort of a footnote in the, uh, in the textbooks at university and nobody ever focused on them. Uh, I thought it was a stupid idea, but I didn't dare uh, question him. So I instead spent weeks sort of uh, trying to understand what a limited partnership was, uh, configuring it to uh, uh, a a venture capital fund, trying to understand how I didn't know what a carried interest was, uh, uh, but trying to understand the carried interest and again trying to work out uh, how uh, to make that efficient. It wasn't very difficult because the underlying profits were capital gains and all I had to do was make sure that the structure in between didn't change the nature of those uh, profits from capital gain to some sort of income. Um, uh, But the limited partnership, uh, being sort of tax transparent, sort of achieved that very naturally. Um, Can you remember what terms you used in that? Like, So everyone these days knows about the 
two and twenty and yeah. In those days, I think it might have been two and a half and twenty for a standard. You know, this, right? But roughly the same the, the, kind of model. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, they're very, very similar to mm. what they uh, what they are now. I mean, uh, uh, at that this particular fund was two million pounds. I think Apex uh, had, uh, which was then called Alan Patrickoff Associates, had uh, just closed a fund for ten million pounds. So you know, the whole industry was much, much smaller to, uh, than what it was now. Mm. And uh, 2.5% was uh, thought to be necessary. Yeah. And you had to submit a budget to your investors to show that it was uh, justified. Do you remember how, who came up with that? Or was that, was that part of the limited partnership structure in the textbooks, the fee level and the oh, no, carry level? No, not at all. I mean, limited partnerships in the textbooks were uh, sort of used for farming. Uh, right. They hadn't been used for... Uh, investment structures. Indeed, you know, one of the first questions was whether um, making investments in parallel uh, through a limited partnership, whether that was a business at all, um, because there were dicta in some cases that said mere co-investment is not enough. And so we had to sort of uh, work out, is this a mere co-investment or is there a business going on here? And we sort of decided the latter, but, you know, who are we to decide? So, uh, we submitted, having sort of worked out a, a structure. I say we, but really it was me. Um, uh, we submitted it to uh, uh, leading council, um, you know, who's experienced in uh, uh, arguing tax cases in the courts, and they could give a sort of uh, idea of what, if it ever came to it, they thought the courts might decide. Um, he blessed it, and uh, so uh, armed with an opinion from leading council, we, 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 we used it for the first time. When was, did the tax issue come to a head? When, when did you have to actually engage with policymakers uh, and prove, prove the case? Well, not long after, uh, the government had got in touch with the BVCA, the Department of Trade and Industry, um, and the uh, Inland Revenue, uh, both as then called, um, uh, got in touch with the BVCA and they sort of said, well, look, look, we like what you're doing. We're proud of this emerging industry. Uh, we're not necessarily keen on your doing it through offshore structures. Although, you know, they did make it clear that they understood that uh, the uh, double charge to capital gains tax was not a fair outcome of using an onshore structure. Mm. Uh, there was a sort of terminology that... Uh, uh, was used uh, about trying to avoid a technical knockout. In this terminology, avoiding a technical knockout was not not tax avoidance. It was something that uh, was fair to do, yeah. and uh, uh, the revenue accepted that that was fair. By the time we had been uh, were invited to uh, discuss this in front of the uh, uh, the treasury, um, uh, the then financial secretary to the treasury. Norman Lamont, who then went on to become Chancellor, I went there with the BVCA and we talked it all through and you know, we uh, discussed uh, whether uh, it was a business in the first case uh, and that, uh, because otherwise it couldn't be a partnership. And they actually had different ideas of how uh, it should be structured. But I think we all agreed uh, that a limited partnership would be better than other structures. Um, so who's in the room at this time? Norman Lamont, people from the Inland Revenue, me and uh, the then 
chairman of the BVCA, who was uh, uh, John Nash, who uh, uh, now Lord John now Nash. Lord Nash, and that was so that was the point that <laughs> the limited partnership really became the legitimate format for venture capital investment in the UK. Yes, but not before uh, me getting sort of grilled as to whether the tax outcome for the carried interest was fair or not. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the revenue said, well, look, if captains of British industry are paying tax on their uh, on their income, uh, income tax on their income, uh, why uh, shouldn't uh, venture capitalists? And I said, uh, because it isn't income, it's capital gain being channeled through uh, a limited partnership. Uh, and so we were sort of... Uh, going to and fro on this question, which, uh, as you know, <laughs> remains a hot issue uh, until today. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, at, at one point I sort of took my courage into my hands and said, look, uh, if you're not going to agree this, um, I would imagine that uh, people will go on using offshore structures. Why wouldn't they? Because you can uh, achieve a capital gain quite easily using an offshore structure. And so again, uh, uh, Mr. Lamont uh, looked at me and looked at the revenue and said, "Do you mean, Mr. Blake, if you use an onshore structure, if you use an offshore structure, rather, you can uh, achieve capital gains tax uh, treatment for the carried interest?" And I said yes, and I sort of had to explain um, exactly how to do it, which itself felt a bit risky because uh, you know it's one thing to have the opinion that something works; it's another thing to uh, declare it publicly um, and invite everybody to scrutinise it uh, and find reasons why uh, it doesn't work. But, you know, I, I decided that was risk worth doing. You have to understand I had, at this point, six or seven clients who I had advised it did work to. So looking yeah. back on it, it might have been even a breach of trust for those clients to start telling the Inland Revenue uh, and the government exactly how we'd done it, even though we did believe the outcome was correct. So I explained it and uh, uh, Lamont turned to the Inland Revenue and said, is what Mr. Blake said correct? And they said, uh, yes. Um, that's all I heard at that point. And he asked me to leave the room and wait outside. <laughs> Waited outside for, uh, must have been 15 minutes. It was quite a long time to be standing outside a room. Uh, and then I was invited back and uh, the head guy from the Inland Revenue said to me, look, I think we can do business together. Uh, so we ended up uh, uh, creating what was called, I think it still exists, the Statement on Guidelines on the Use of Limited Partnerships as Venture Capital Investment Funds. You know, within that, we set out model terms, pretty similar to the terms as they are now, uh, you know, given that these funds were uh, so small, it uh, was uh, two and a half and 20 rather than two and 20, but we had to sort of open up our budgets to uh, uh, to investors to uh, to show why we needed two and a half percent and said two and a half and 20, uh, two and a half percent of commitments for the uh, for the management fee and 20 percent of profits for, for the carry and quite a few other terms and conditions were set out in that. I'm told now, I didn't know it at the time, uh, Tony Lorenz, um, Ronald Cohen, some of the titans of the venture capital industry were, and John Nash were telling me what the standard terms and conditions were and I put them down. Now I'm told that until then they weren't as standard as I was led to believe they were but that after that 
because they were in a document uh, blessed by the Inland Revenue. Uh, and some people felt that unless you mm. followed every, you know, everything precisely, I don't think that was the case because we were setting out and we all agreed that we were just setting out what we believed the law was, not uh, trying to change the law because you, uh, you need a statute to do that. Uh, so we were just setting out what we all agreed the law was. In the best tradition of kind of common law and declaratory law, just observing what is the standard yeah. and then articulating yeah. it. Uh, so as I say, uh, I don't think people had to adhere slavishly to the mm. model terms that we did, but people did. Yeah. And so the two and 20 uh, or two and a half and 20 as it started, mm. it got sort of negotiated down fund by fund over mm. many years. But, uh, you know, that became the standard terms and conditions and they're pretty much uh, the terms and conditions that exist today. It's amazing how, from a bird's eye view uh, how little has changed. Well, it, it is amazing. So that must be the most uh, influential <laughs> policy meeting in the history of European, UK European private equity and venture capital and the amount of value that has been created. I mean, it's you can't prove a, a negative, but who knows if you hadn't uh, convinced yeah, them yeah. and it was treated as, yeah. as, as profits and income. Yeah. Um, what the industry would look like yeah. today. Yeah, I mean, people say all sorts of things about private equity these days, but in those days, uh, you know, there was no doubt that it was, quote, a good thing. We're investing in, say, that buyout of the lithium battery division of EverReady, saving the people from redundancy, mm. helping them set up a business, uh, uh, in that case, uh, tax-advantaged money, yeah. you uh, know, then setting up funds uh, to enable other people to do similar things, um, you know, was all thought to be uh, a good thing. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed a position for some time where I could just ring up the Inland Revenue and say, because, uh, you know, a particular client would say, well, you know, if we do 2% two, 2 rather than 2.5%, is it still tax efficient? And I would, I would say yes, but they would be nervous. And so I would ring up the Inland Revenue with them and they and the Inland Revenue would say, yes, it still works. Are you surprised how little change there has been in the essential, uh, <laughs> kind of the top the top line terms of limited partnership agreements? Look, the, the top line terms, mm. uh, I, I, yes, I think the answer is yes a, anyway, but um, uh, there are lots of second division uh, terms which are still really important. Um uh, you know, how the key man clauses work exactly. I mean, all these things are, and, you know, those sorts of levels, indeed, even the 2.5%, uh, uh, you know, became 2% and for much larger funds uh, is less than that. All of that uh, got got uh, uh, got changed. Uh, and that is a lot of money. Uh, and, uh, you know, what exactly happens with... Uh, costs and who bears what costs uh, you know whether the two two and a half percent covers everything or whether the uh, the managers are uh, allowed to uh, uh, charge the partnership for, uh, for other expenses i mean all that uh, had to be sort of worked out on a fund by fund basis and that uh, initially funds varied uh, but over time those uh, settled down as well Indeed, there was a time, I remember, when uh, uh, a chairman of the BVCA wanted to uh, standardise all the terms 
uh, and he said, oh, well, John Blake will never agree to that because <laughs> uh, he wants to, uh, uh, you know, charge full fees on every occasion, not work with the stand. But it wasn't me who was objecting, actually. It was the... Uh, um, the fund managers uh, immediately told this guy because uh, they want flexibility because they want flexibility mm. they d- mm. didn't think uh, all funds should be the same mm. a larger yeah. fund a smaller fund you know there's a negotiating but position. there does seem to be some level of mar- market standard which must give either managers or investors comfort I mean yeah, there must be a yeah, reason that yeah, there's yeah, been so yes, yes, if yeah. you compare private equity with say investment banking or trading <laughs> or investment bank risk management how much innovation there's been there in the last 40 years tinkering with the second layer of economic <laughs> terms in an in an lpa seems yeah. relatively conservative so, <laughs> to put it mildly although as you say i mean maybe maybe these technical um definitions have a, a disproportionate effect so what what is the 2% management fee based on you know invested capital or whatever i, yeah, I don't yeah, know presumably yeah. that that kind of thing can make a big difference. Yes. Well, the difference between invested capital and committed capital is huge. The standard is committed capital, not uh, not invested capital. But, uh, uh, you know, obviously if managers are investing deal by deal, then you can only do it on committed capital because there isn't a, a fund. And do you know how things uh, have gone acro- across the Atlantic? So obviously they use limited partnership funds on similar terms as well. Do you know the ev- the evolution story there and how they may have influenced each other? Uh, I don't. I, I, I do know that at the time I didn't know that limited partnerships were being used in the United States. Uh, and so, you know, all of this was being done in ignorance of what was being done on the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, it seems extraordinary uh, yeah. now, but, um, you know, I, I, I thought we were breaking completely new ground, which is why actually the uh, uh, the structure and the the format of a, uh, a limited partnership fund agreement in Europe uh, is different to that in America. Indeed, it's why the carried interest in Europe is different to in America. In Europe, it's done on a, uh, a fund as a whole basis, whereas in America, it's on, uh, it's on a deal by deal, albeit with a true up. Uh, if other deal, deals later do badly, uh, but that true up doesn't often happen. So it's very much thought to be on a deal by deal. You get 20% of the profit on each deal, mm. uh, subject to carried interest, subject to hurdles, mm. etc. Yeah, and that's a function of uh, the fact that they grew up historically rather separate. You know, you only had telephones <laughs> and fax machines, not the internet. And so you weren't, you weren't hugely connected. And so they grew up historically differently. differently. Yeah. Um, and and that stayed in place, which seems remarkable given you know financial innovation, you know <laughs> goes across borders, like you know ideas go across borders. But that's proven well, uh, very um, sticky. Yes, yes, it has. Um, hmm. You're right. It uh, uh, it is remarkable how uh, uh, how similar things uh, are at a bird's eye view level. On the, the the tax treatment question of carried interest, this has been a, a various points. It's been a very big political issue sometimes mm. it dies down but it never goes away so you agreed this presum- presumably it was under a thatcher government that was that, is that uh, like yes 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 definitely yeah, yeah. and it's and it survived <laughs> all of the other political colors all the way through well it's extraordinary actually uh, i mean uh, you know all this depends on the rate of capital gains tax being different to the rate of income tax but up to now uh, who knows what will happen in the future it's been Labour governments who've reduced the rate of capital gains tax. 
Blair-Brown government reduced it to 10%, whereas Conservative governments have tended to push it up again. The industry itself has grown beyond all measure mm -hmm. and presumably vastly exceeded your expectations mm -hmm. and everyone else's expectations. The fundamental structure, though, has proven incredibly scalable with a few adjustments, say 2% down to one and a half. Um, or and the limited partnership itself. Yes. Yes. Uh, not just the terms and conditions, but the limited partnership structure has... Uh, yes. Because, uh, uh, you know, it was untested and it's now mm. become the absolute standard. Presumably, and presumably that, that surprised you as well, the fact that it's so scalable. I mean, when... Because the industry <laughs> grew pretty quickly during yeah. the period between, let's say, 2002 to 2008. Mm -hmm. You must have been watching it during that period and thinking, well, now we're looking at billion pound funds. Now we're looking at 10 billion pound funds. Now, yeah. You know... And, it's, and it still works, and there's no upper limit to that. Apart from maybe the top-line economic terms, what are, what are you seeing at the moment in terms of the big changes in the, in the LPA? Broadly, it, it, it's rolling together uh, the economic terms, the uh, personal terms of the holders of carried interest who are generally referred to as general partners, but they're not. It's normally a company. That's a general partner, but sometimes the individuals are called the general partners. So it, it uh, uh, contains their sort of um, uh, terms of service. Uh, so before there were limited partnerships, there were would have been a number of different agreements uh, covering the same uh, the same territory. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously uh, uh, over time that's changed. The whole regulatory framework mm. has changed. Uh, uh, more than more than anything, I mean, initially, it was largely tax that you were trying to uh, steer your way around uh, to quotes avoid a technical knockout. But uh, nowadays, the complexity is very much around the regulatory structures. Right. So you've advised on hundreds of of, of processes, and the strange thing about, I guess, private equity funds is, as opposed to let's say doing deals is that they are still relatively rare for any individual house, even of a reasonable scale. Mm. It's a big event to go out yes. and raise a fund. Well, it's a life or death event. It's a bet, exactly, bet, it's a right. bet, bet the company event. Yes, yeah. and, they, and, they, don't, and yeah. they don't do it that often. And so that therefore... And some people fail. Um, right. Uh, that didn't used to happen. But you know, nowadays there are some quite well-known managers who have uh, not succeeded in uh, raising a successor fund because the fund has a 10-year life, um, say. I mean, that's also uh, uh, variable, but, um, you know, the general idea is that it uh, collects um, commitments, uh, invests in a single set of investments over a, a three- to five-year investment period, and then uh, in the rest of the term of the fund, uh, it, it uh, develops those uh, companies, mm you try to improve the companies um, and uh, uh, then sell them. Uh, and, you know, all that has to happen in a 10-year period. And the you know, outcome then is you distribute the proceeds. So it's very much an in-and-out uh, uh, process. So the, the fund doesn't continue. Uh, when it sells its last investments, it's gone. So yeah. e each house will raise uh, a series of successor funds and the, originally they all just did buyouts or just did one thing. Uh, you know, nowadays, there'll be uh, a house will have different teams doing different funds um, under the same uh, umbrella. Yeah. Things are slightly more complicated these days than in the old days, insofar as 
institutional investors often have their own specific requirements that re that require a side letter or a, yes, yes, a side yeah. agreement. Are they effectively like mini LPAs on a bilateral basis that connect in with the large one? Uh, uh, they could be, uh, but there is a, uh, a, a an umbrella term called uh, a most favoured nation uh, status. Investors will insist that... Uh, uh, that they are the most favoured nation. They're, there's nobody getting better terms than them. Um, uh, and if everybody uh, insists that, you end up with a standard set of terms oh, now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you can have layered most favoured nation, i.e., you know, if you're going to invest uh, uh, 100 million into a fund, you might get better terms than somebody investing 1 million into a fund. Um, oh, they're so, more equal than the others. Then, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there's, uh, uh, and you'd expect that in an economy yeah. of scale. Uh, I mean, often there isn't. Your day job, you're currently head of international funds at, <laughs> at Herbert Smith. What does that actually involve? What's keeping you busy at the moment? You know, I'm enjoying working within uh, Herbert Smith Freehills to uh, help advance uh, private capital uh, now tends to be called private capital because it's not just private equity, uh, but private infrastructure, private real estate, private credit debt, um, uh, uh, and indeed the venture capital, the high-risk mm. high, high mm. ventures. Uh, Herbert Smith Freehills is uh, a fantastic firm which uh, has real depths of, of experience in a, a whole range of different areas, infrastructure, energy, renewable energy, private equity, innovation tech, uh, all of these uh, really play to strength within uh, Herbert Smith, which is uh, a very large UK uh, law firm. And uh, initially, there weren't that many large UK law firms involved in venture capital. It tended to be the province of, uh, of smaller. Uh, and it's really been over time that it uh, has uh, sort of grown upwards and Herbert Smith Freehills has grown upwards with it. Part of my job is uh, trying to help as the whole economy sort of has shifted to uh, uh, unquoted companies and uh, mm. you know, investment committees uh, being the uh, where decisions of the future are being taken rather mm. than corporate boards. Working with people at Herbert Smith to uh, to move the firm more and more in that direction yeah. is... Uh, uh, as part of the challenge, you know, I, I'm a big believer in uh, private equity, venture capital, uh, private markets. Uh, mm. It takes me back all the way to the first investment that I did with that uh, management team from uh, EverReady, and uh, the sort of personal nature of it. Uh, it doesn't feel quite the same with a, uh, a, a, a multi-million or multi-billion uh, buyout, but essentially it is the same. Uh, and so I'm a big believer that it's a better way uh, of uh, uh, doing business than quoted companies. I mean, the share of the cake uh, mm. that the private market represents is still a lot smaller uh, than that of the uh, public and listed markets. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, there are criticisms that uh, particularly the press tend to levy against uh, private markets um, but, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, it, it is demonstrable uh, that, that the performance uh, is often better. So, uh, 
you know, I think it'll uh, just continue to be onwards and upwards. Yeah, I, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I keep thinking of new questions to ask you, but we've got to bring this to a close eventually. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for sparing your time. Pleasure. You've been listening to the Fund Shack Podcast. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. This podcast was designed and produced by Linear B Group, a leading content marketing agency focused on financial and professional services. Thanks for listening. To